0: Welcome to New Cities Sermon Podcast. Join us as we root deep in God's word, expecting to be encouraged, challenged, and formed to be more like Jesus together. Let's get into the scriptures now. We're gonna continue our series in the in the book of Esther. We're part of a bigger series where we're looking at the period in the Bible called. The exile, where Israel had been, they've been rescued out of Egypt, brought into the Promised Land, and because of their disobedience and unfaithfulness, they were captured by Babylon and taken into captivity, taken into exile, and then lived in Babylon. Uh, but about uh, seventy years later, Persia had overtaken Babylon and sent many of the exiles back to Jerusalem, uh, except there were many who lived in Persia still. Esther and Mordecai being included. And that's a story that we're going to be continuing today. We'll give you a little background if you missed last week, but I would encourage you to go back and listen to Esther Part 1 as we do Esther Part 2 today. Uh, we're going to be talking about the hand of God, Esther Part 2. And even when I say that phrase, the hand of God, where have you seen the hand of God in your life, um, as you hear that phrase, you might think about a specific season You walk through that as you look back on it now, you clearly see the hand of God in your life. Or you might be in a place where you really wanted the hand of God to move in your life and you didn't feel like it was there. And because you didn't feel like it was there, you have trouble even hearing about God's presence or the hand of God in your life. Uh, A lot of people feel a lot of different ways when you say that. And if we were to interview each person and say, tell me about the hand of God in your life, I guarantee you many of you would say something completely different. Unless you're from the country of Argentina. And if you're from the country of Argentina, the hand of God means something very, very specific, if you say the hand of God to an Argentinian, they will think of this, the 1986 World Cup cornerfinal. 99% of people from Argentina, t- test me out, Argentina, will think of the World Cup quarterfinal where Argentina played England. Now, this was just four years after the Falklands War, four years after Argentina and England had been at war together. And here they met in the quarterfinal. And in this game, there were just so many strange coincidences, so many things that just so happened to happen. The game was at 0-0, and you see there pictured above is Diego Maradona, the, the, the legend from Argentina, one of the greatest players of all time. The score was 0-0 and Argentina, Argentina was pressing against England and Maradona took the ball and dribbled it into the middle and kind of chipped it over to one of his teammates who lost control of the ball. And one of the England defenders kicked it, but he happened to kick it backwards towards his own goalie. And because he kicked it backwards, it just so happened that Maradona would not have been, would, was not offsides, And in soccer, if you're past the defenders and the ball isn't there, you're off sides. But because it just so happened that the England defender kicked it, Maradona was on side and the ball was up in the air. And you could see that Maradona and the goalie from England were both going for the ball right in front of the right in front of the goal. Now, the goalie for England was eight inches taller than Maradona, and the goalie went to punch the ball back out to the center to clear it from his goal, but it just so happened that he missed it. He missed the ball, and at that point, the ball came over, and it just so happened to hit Maradona's left hand, go off his hand, and into the goal, and everyone goes wild. Wild. And Maradona runs around celebrating, but there's a little bit of uncertainty in his face because there's really one rule about soccer that you must know. And the rule about soccer that you must know is you can't use your hands. You can't use your hands. And so that ball had gone into the goal. It just so happened to come off his hand into the goal. And it just so happened that the referee didn't see it. And so they called it a goal, but then the England players started complaining. And so the referee went over to the other referee, and it just so happened that that other referee didn't see it either. And it just so happened that four minutes later, Maradona scored an amazing goal, not using his hands, using his feet this time. Argentina goes on to advance. They go to the semifinals. They beat Belgium. They go to the finals. They beat West Germany, and they end up, World Cup champions. I think we have a picture of him holding Maradona, holding up the trophy. And and now the, the phrase, the hand of God, comes from this. During that time, they asked Maradona, come on, tell us the truth. Was it legal or was it illegal? And Maradona very wisely said, well, that goal was a little with the head of Maradona and a little with the hand of God. And that is why, if you use the phrase, the hand of God, every Argentinian will think of the 1986 World Cup quarterfinals. But as we look at the book of Esther, and as we think about our own lives, and we think about how our lives unfold, and just things that are coincidences, and timing that happens, and things just so happen to happen, sometimes they happen in our favor, like the goal called the hand of God, but a lot of times they they don't happen in our favor. Sometimes things happen and it just so happens that those coincidences kind of go against us. And it, it makes us wonder at times if God's hand is real and if God's hand is present, and if God's hand is present, is it good? And if it's good, is it powerful enough to have a purpose even when things don't go our way or things don't line up with what we want? But the book of Esther reminds us that the hand of God is dependable, that the hand of God is predictable even, and that the hand of our God is purposeful, and therefore we can trust, not the goal by Maradona, but the actual hand of God, the hand of our God. We can trust the hand of our God. Now, in the story, we covered four chapters last week, and we're going to fly through the book. I just want to give you the overview of the book so you can see that you can trust the hand of God. Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai is a a Jewish man. He's a government bureaucrat. He's the uncle of orphaned Esther. And Haman does not like Mordecai because Mordecai won't bow to him. And through these series of coincidences, Esther ends up being queen to the Persian King Xerxes. And Mordecai finds out that someone wants to kill the king, King Xerxes, and he tells Esther that, and Esther tells the king, and and they stop the assassination attempt. But then Mordecai's forgotten about. He's forgotten about and then Haman kind of comes in power, and Haman's like, I hate Mordecai, and I hate his people. King, let's kill them all. And King Xerxes then signs an edict that says, on this day, at this time, 11 months from now, all the Jewish people in my kingdom will be killed. It's open season. And we're left at this point. Well, we'll just read it. We're left at this point in Esther 4 where Mordecai sends a message and Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows, perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way, and after that I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish." Mordecai is encouraging Esther to approach the king uninvited. And in that culture, you couldn't just go and see the king like you could go and see our city council member. The king had absolute authority and had power. And if you walked in uninvited, unless he pointed his scepter at you to say that you can come, then you would be executed on the spot. But Esther seems to be the only hope of the people. And so Mordecai says, go. And where Esther is at first timid, in self-preserving, she decides to risk. She decides to show dependence because that's all she has. She, she depends on the hand of God, which shows that she believes the hand of God is dependable. Now, now, she shows this without even really saying it. She says that she's going to fast and that Mordecai and all his people should fast and we think, actually, that Esther's understanding of God is, like, not a high level of understanding. At, at this time, they were 100 years past when they had been in Jerusalem. And you can imagine that the Persian culture's kind of overtaken their understanding of who God is. So they might even have very Persian ideas about who God was. And, and so she doesn't even mention the word pray. She says fast. But in fasting, she knows that there is a God who is committed to her people and is dependable, and so she depends on him. Now, that's encouraging to me because if we look at Esther and we say her level of knowledge of God wasn't very high, she still knows that God is dependable even if she doesn't fully understand who he is. That's encouraging to me because oftentimes I feel like I don't get God. But yeah, God doesn't wait for me to get to a certain understanding of him before he commits to be dependable to me and to you. And if that's true, if God is dependable, then that is an invitation for us wherever we're at in our spiritual journey to pray to him, but also to risk boldly. Esther makes a decision to risk boldly and obey. And I think sometimes, as we've talked about in the series multiple times, the temptation for us as modern-day Christians and as people who have been uh, Americanized by our faith, we can, we can think that God's dependability means that we are saved from any risk. We are saved from tough obedience. But the reality is God is dependable, and God ha- God's hand works in our favor in the midst of risk not to keep us from risk, but rather as we go through risk, as we go through the fire, right? He doesn't pull us out of the fire necessarily. He he wants to go through the fire with us. And at times I've heard Christians say, well, listen, it doesn't really matter what you do. God just wants you to be willing to do it. And it's like, well, okay. Uh, God doesn't really care if you're generous. He just wants you to be willing to be generous. God doesn't really care if you forgive your enemies. He just wants you to be willing to forgive your enemies. God doesn't really want you to make peace or share the good news or do justice. He just wants you to be willing to. But but that is too safe of an understanding of what it means to obey our God. Because if we're willing to do something, then we will do it. If God is dependable, then we can take a risk and we can actually follow through. Not just have a heart posture, but have a heart posture that leads to action in the real world. We can give generously. We can forgive our enemies. We can make peace. We can share good news. We can do justice, even when there's real risk. Like Esther says, where she says, If I perish, I perish. Her understanding of God's dependability doesn't mean that she will live. She still believes, I might die, and yet the hand of God is still dependable. We have to wrestle with that because so much of our understanding of God's dependability means we get always what we want or we get to be safe. But the hand of God is dependable in the midst of our risk. And and Esther decides to go forward with it. In Esther 5, chapter 1 on the third day, Esther dressed in her royal clothing and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. Now, as we're reading this, you kind of have to hear a drum roll in the background. Like, this, this is intense, what's happening right here. I'm going to read through it quickly. But you can imagine the heart of this young Jewish girl as she's approaching the king in this throne room, knowing that 10 minutes from now, she might not be alive. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtroom facing its entrance. As soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she gained favor with him. Hmm. The king extended the golden scepter in his hand towards Esther, and she approached and touched the tip of the scepter. What is it, Queen Esther? The king asked her. Whatever you want even to half the kingdom will be given to you. If it pleases the king, Esther replied, may the king and Haman, remember Haman's the bad guy, may hang, May the king and Haman come today to the banquet I have prepared for them. The king said, hurry and get Haman so we can do as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. And at that banquet, the king goes, what is it? What do you want? What's your request? And Esther says, well, I want you to come to another banquet. I asked you to this first party because I wanted you to come to another one. And it's interesting because as this is happening, we're starting to see something unfold that we can't really put words on. But, But Esther has gone from this place of helplessness to we get the sense that there's something in the background that's helping her. It's almost like the power dynamics are slowly switching without us hearing what those power dynamics are. Esther approaches the throne room. She lives by the hidden but dependable hand of God because God has a purpose for her that we're just starting to get in the story. Now, I I love this because Esther is in the moment. She is trying to wisely figure out how to walk forward in faith. And she doesn't know what's going to happen next. So often, I I think also that when we think about God being dependable, we can confuse that with God being predictable. Like, God, I depend on you to make my life the way I want it. And that's never part of the plan. I think so often as Christians, myself included, we can get so caught up in a story unfolding that we assume we know where it's going and we get to the end of the story in our mind before God's even gotten halfway through. Have you ever told God what he's doing before he was done doing it? Esther is just living in the moment, letting the story unfold. She has a freedom to risk, to pray and obey to fast and move forward because God the hand of God is dependable even if she cannot predict it and what it's going to do now i know i just said that the hand that god is not predictable but my second point in the sermon is the hand of god is predictable so i am going against myself and i'll explain why if we look at esther 5 Starting in verse 9, it says, That day Haman left full of joy and in good spirits. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble in fear at his presence, Haman was filled with rage towards Mordecai. Yet Haman controlled himself and went home. He sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh to join him. Then Haman described for them his glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them all how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over all the other officials in the royal staff. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. And I am invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. Still, none of this satisfies me since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. His wife Zeresh and his friends told him, have them build a gallows 70 feet tall. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. The advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows constructed. Now, we get the sense, again, that timing is of the essence because Haman is trying to get Mordecai hung tomorrow. And yet, here's what's predictable about God. The hand hand of God is predictable against pride. Haman is a real character. He really lived, but he is also a reminder and a warning to us against pride. Jesus says, out of the heart come things that are evil, that defile us. And one of those things that Jesus mentions is pride. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, Peter, the apostle, says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because here's where God is predictable. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God loves to oppose the proud, but lift up those who are lowly before him. Here's the weird thing about Haman. As we look at his character, Haman has everything. He's literally number two in the kingdom, but he has no rest because of Mordecai. Like one little guy upsets everything for him. You notice even when he goes to his home and he's with his friends and he's with his wife, he just talks about himself the whole time. This is everything that I have, and this is everything I don't have. It's interesting, we're meant in this story to see the pride in Haman. And if we're honest, it's easy to see the pride in each other, but it's very difficult to see the pride in ourselves. It's very hard. It's very hard to see your own pride. Pride could be classified as self-absorption, self-absorption. You can see it. When Haman opens his mouth, he's just talking about himself. Now, the pride that Haman has is one of superiority, and that's something that we tend to think of when we think about pride. It's comparing yourself to others constantly. It's like, where do I stand? You notice how Haman commented over and over and over again about how high he was compared to other people. Uh, You know, we can do that with our social standing with other people or our appearance compared to other people. We can have this sense of superiority, but there's an underbelly to pride, which is inferiority. Inferiority. That is a pride, now hear me out, that is a pride where we're focused on beating ourselves up. We don't like ourselves. Nothing is right in our lives, we're not worthy. Et cetera, etc. Cetera. But here's the weird thing about that. it's still self-absorption. It's still completely focused on yourself. Pride can be one of both superiority or inferiority and both lead us to be absorbed with me. Tim Keller puts it this way as he compares what humility would be then compared with, superiority and inferiority of self-absorption. According to the Bible, Keller says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. That's just inferiority. Rather, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's not being needy for approval or respect, not caring about approval or respect, Rather, you say hello to people, you hang out with people, you go to certain jobs, and you do things not because it makes you feel good about yourself. What you do gets respect, it gets approval, and you do it for those things in themselves, but it's not all about you. Humility, he's saying, really means that you're unneedy. If you've actually met a really humble person, you would never come away thinking they were humble all you would remember is they were happy and incredibly interested in you. They're not thinking about themselves and how you're treating them and how you're looking at them at all. All that ego calculation, it's it's gone. Now we see in Haman that he's focused on my success and my status or my the slights against me. He talks about himself over and over again. He's talking about his story. And we're sort of meant to see him counterposition to Esther, who started off in the story uh in this lowly place in a self-preservation and self-um. and and lacking risk for other people, but rather begins to see herself as a part of a larger story and then steps out both in boldness but in humility, willing to sacrifice herself for the benefit of others. And maybe we need to explore that. Because as we think about the hand of God in our life, do we only think about it in terms of something for me? Even when we think about the hand of God, are we totally self-absorbed as we think about it? Do we think that the hand of God owes me something because I'm superior or I'm inferior? Do we think about our story alone or are we ever willing to place our story in God's larger story? That's, That's where humility comes. See, pride is I'm the center and God revolves around me That's just a a God-washed version of pride. So many of us aren't even aware that God has a story that he's calling us into to be part of something bigger, the redemption of all things that calls us to take risks, and it it calls us to humility, but also to boldness. And we're meant to examine Haman, and we're meant to examine Esther and go, which one's more like me? Well, it's at that moment that another coincidence happens. It just so happens that the night before Mordecai is supposed to be hung, he can't sleep. And so he says, hey, uh, somebody go get me the records of the kingdom and just read to me until I can fall asleep. This is the effect of, like, find the most boring book you can and just read to me until I zonk out. And someone starts reading the records, and in the records that they just so happen to choose, it's the records about Mordecai, Saving the king from the assassin. And he asks, Well, how, how did we how did we honor Mordecai? And that culture loyalty was huge. So the fact that the king had not rewarded Mordecai for his loyalty, he's like, We got to do something now. Well, the next morning, Haman's running in to tell the king, hey, I want to kill Mordecai. I've got the gallows ready. And the king stops Haman and says, hey, listen, I really want to honor somebody in my kingdom. What would you do for this person that I really want to honor? And Haman goes, he's talking And Haman lists out all these things that he wants to happen. I would give him the best clothes. I would put him on on a horse and ride him around town. I would put a crown on him and give this guy an entourage and, and have these people stand next to him going, this is the king's guy, this is the king's guy. And the king says, Haman, that's great. That's an amazing idea. Can you go and do that for Mordecai? And you can just see Haman's jaw drop, and he's utterly humiliated. See, God is predictable. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And Mordecai goes, and instead of killing, I'm sorry, Haman goes, and instead of killing Mordecai, he himself has to honor Mordecai. And he's just sunk. And then he rushes off to the banquet. The second banquet with Esther chapter 7 Queen Esther answered to the king she's gonna tell him if I have found favor with you your majesty and if the king is pleased spare my life this is my request now the king's like what's going on here what are you talking about spare your life and spare my people, this is my desire, for my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have been kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. King Asuras that's Xerxes, spoke up and asked Queen Esther, Who is this, and where is the one who would devise such a scheme? And here's the great reversal in the story. Esther answered, The adversary and the enemy is the evil Haman. Haman stood up, terrified before the king and the queen. The king rose in anger and went from there, from where they were drinking wine, to the palace garden. Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. And then here's another just so happened. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. It looks to Xerxes like Haman is assaulting his wife. The king exclaimed, would he actually violate the queen while I am in the house? As soon as the statement left the king's mouth, they, that's the king's servant, they covered Haman's face Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, hey, there's a gallows 75 feet tall that we know about at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai. Um, can we go ahead there? And the king says, let's hang him on it. And they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's anger subsided. Um, we see the predictability of the hand of God, that he opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And it's, I mean, here's the thing. This guy, Haman, wasn't just a bad dude. He didn't just need um, like a year of therapy. He was evil. He wanted to wipe out an entire people. And the hand of God is predictable in humbling such a prideful evil man. But lastly, the hand of God is purposeful. We begin to start to see the coincidences that have happened throughout this story. That, that Vashi just so happened to, to tell no to the king. And so she gets deposed as the queen. And then Queen Esther comes in and she wins the queenship. And then Mordecai over here is the assassin, but he gets re- he doesn't get rewarded. It just goes in the record book until now. And, and, and then and then the king just so happens to return at the moment when, when it looks like. Haman is trying to hurt his wife. And now now at this moment, Haman's out. He's dead. And Mordecai's number two. Mordecai gets promoted to number two. And they, they go to the king and they say, look, you, you got to save our people. You got to revoke this law where you're going to kill all the Jews. And, and a Persian king can't revoke his own law because that would mean that he was wrong. So he says, I can't do that, but what we can do is we can do a new edict. We can do a new law. So they do. They do a new law that says on the day that everyone's supposed to kill your people, Esther, we make a new law that says that they can assemble and form armies and defend themselves to death. So it's a law of self-defense. They are allowed to take up arms against those who would take up arms against them. Anyone hostile to them, they can fight against, and they do. On that one day, 11 months after the original edict, the Jews rise up and they defend themselves because the purposeful hand of God has been working behind the scenes to rescue them. But then there's this really weird part of the story that no one really knows what to do with. Esther goes, hey, uh, King Xerxes, can we have one more day? Like, I'm not sure we got everybody and there's still some people out there. Can can we have one more day where we can, like, go get anybody who we think is against us? And I'll tell you, theologians don't really know what to do with this. Like, they don't know if Esther's just being wise or if Esther sees an opportunity for revenge, and there's a little bit of bloodthirst in her. There's a little bit of evil in her. We're wondering if Esther has purposely gone too far. Now, here's the weird thing I can't read the story and tell you what's actually going on in Esther's head and heart, but I know that as you read the story, the question will come up for you too Does she push it too far? Wallace P. Ben says this, he says, there is sometimes a hair's breadth between justice and revenge. It's definitely right for people who have been sadly abused or who are victims of prejudice to seek justice, but that can easily become desire for vengeance and sometimes end up unfairly hurting and victimizing others. We know that at this time, people were actually pretending to be Jews while this edict was going out so that no one would take up arms against them. And to be quite blunt, we can't really read this story and not think about what's happening in our world right now, not think about what's happening in Israel and Palestine and Hamas where where people are taking up arms against each other. And I'll tell you, it's a weird time with lots of morally complex questions, like the question that I've never seen anti-Semitism as strongly portrayed as I, in my life as I have at this moment. And yet at the same time, 10,000 plus Palestinians have been killed in Gaza. And at the same time, Hamas has been exposed as using children in Gaza as human shields. All of that is true. And from the story, we see that people definitely have a right to defend themselves and protect themselves, but we're also called to forgive our enemies and make peace. And I think the author tells the story in a way that at the very end, we ask questions about what, what is justified when it comes to violence? And I'll tell you, I'm not sure I have any answers. I just have a lot of questions. And the question that comes to my mind as I read what Esther has done is how far is too far? Or even this, have we gone an inch too far when it comes to defending what is right? Now, this doesn't excuse evil, but too often you and I and people around the world are tempted to act as if they bear the hand of God. And that's troubling. It's interesting, even Diego Maradona years later, he said this, Years later, the World Cup had been won. And he said, now I can say what I couldn't say at the moment. What I defined at the time as the hand of God. What hand of God? It was the hand of Diego. He's like, I did it. (laughs) And I think we can ask ourselves the question as we think about world events and as we think about the own pride in our heart, as we think about enemies and we think about world conflict, um, how do we go about this in a way that doesn't go an inch too far? And I'm not sure I have an answer for that. But I think it's a question that we have to ask as people around the world are dying. But lest we despair, let us find hope. Though our hands can be stained with blood, God has purposeful hands. Xerxes forces obedience. Haman manipulates for control. But God uses people who aren't great obeyers because he's always in control. Though God is never mentioned by name in these 10 chapters, not once. His hand is always active. And it's to remind us the whole point of this book is that God is in charge even though we don't see him. In fact, the end of the book sums up by saying the point of this book is really about this feast called the Feast of Purim. And Purim comes from the word pure, which means not P-U-R-E, but P-U-R, a word that meant to cast lots, which is what Haman did. Haman thought everything was up to chance and that he would find the right date to do this injustice. But the Feast of Purim is that didn't win because coincidence and chance isn't what's in control of the universe. Rather, it's the hand of God. And so every year after that, The Jews celebrated the Feast of Purim. That was meant to say our God's hand wins. Chance doesn't win because our God is full of purpose. And everything he does, he's in control. And that's really what the whole book of Esther is leading up to, that God's hand is not absent even when we can't see him. In fact, let's have a meal every year to remind ourselves of that reality. And for you and I, even though at times we can't see the hand of God in our life, and, and we wonder, if, am I out here alone? Is this fate? Is there any destiny? Where, where is God's hand? we're reminded that we too have a meal that reminds us, us of the purposeful hand of God. In fact, it reminds us of the purposeful hand of God by pointing us to the, the nail-scarred hands of Jesus, that life isn't about just random coincidences and random chance, but rather the Son of God coming into this world to die for you and me. And in the same way the Feast of Purim marks something for those who are Jewish, this meal right here, this bread and this wine marks something for you and for me. Even Jesus prayed, let this cup pass, but then ultimately submitted and obeyed and risked and said, not my will, but yours be done. And as we take this meal, we are, we are reminded that life at times seems random, that life at times seems out of our control, that the hand of God at times seems unpredictable and hidden, but ultimately is, it is dependable and purposeful and trustworthy because the hand of God is the one who sent the Son of God to the cross. Thank you for joining with us as we rooted deep in God's word. If you found this sermon encouraging, share it with a friend. You can learn more about New City by going to newcityhh.com or checking us out on social media by searching New City HH. We'll see you next week.